Hi, everybody. Welcome to the June 10th, 2016 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Duzzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take around the table on the passing of Muhammad Ali and the global reaction to his legacy. Of course, he, uh, Paddy Calhoun from Western, he's being laid to rest, uh, really, I think, as we speak in his hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, your thoughts on his passing and the reaction? Well, really, when you look at his life, he was the greatest. When you saw what energy he brought as the young Cassius Clay, what hope he brought to an entire community and, in fact, the world, people who had never thought they could be as famous. And then when he took the conscientious objector stand to go into Vietnam, I mean, really, really remarkable man who deserves all the airtime he's getting now, unlike some. Mm -hmm. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, Muhammad Ali had connections in Denver and really around the world. We don't come across people like this very often in our lifetimes. Your thoughts? One of his inter many interesting connections was back in American history, his rematch with Sonny Liston, which ended with Liston going down for the count less than two minutes into the first round. Ali had predicted he was going to pull a surprise in the first round and people should come to the fight early because it might not last long. Ali said what he did was something called the anchor punch, which had he had learned about it from Jack Johnson, who at the early 20th century was also the super controversial black world heavyweight champion. And according to Ali, he was taught about Jack Johnson's anchor punch by Step and Fetch It, the famous minstrel performer. Wow, that's, you always give grade A history kind of stuff right here in Carter South. Thanks to our friend David Copel. Eric Sonnen, political analyst, joins us. Uh, you, Usually you, you see news in this day and age uh, can, as the uh, best people to overreact over something, making a non-celebrity somebody that they give 24-7 coverage to. I think in Muhammad Ali, we finally, I think as Patty alluded to, we have someone who truly deserved all the airtime and ink and any other attention that was uh, uh, thrust upon him actually deserved it. What do you think? Yeah, when the news came out a few days ago of his passing, I think we'd all known that he was in declining health, that this day was coming, but it was still sort of a, oh my gosh, semi-take-your-breath-away moment when you saw the online reports, uh, what have you, that, 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 that he had passed away. David mentioned, you know, the one Colorado connection. There's another Colorado connection, a much more almost ceremonial and less consequential, but don't forget that fight out at, I think it was out at the old Mile High Stadium with Lyle Alzado. Um, I, I think that was in the waning years and obviously a less than serious, uh, a less than serious fight, but uh, he was a cultural icon in his prime. He remained a cultural icon, um, and his death has become somewhat of a cultural moment, not just in this country, uh, but, but around the world. He was that he was that face that was recognizable basically across humanity, races, continents, you name it, people knew this gentleman. Penn Tate, attorney at QTAC Rock, longtime state lawmaker. Uh, like I said, it, it's been hard to exaggerate the, the, the impact of the legacy of Muhammad Ali, especially when you think about the global, global perspective. Uh, we have a Denver connection all the way around the world. 
Um, what would you like to add to the conversation? Uh, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, rumble, young man, rumble. It, it sort of epitomizes his life, and, and it really encapsulates the legacy that he's left behind. He's a three-time world champion. He took all, all comers. He didn't have a perfect record, but he survived defeat and came back and rebounded. He really defined the times in this country in, in that he was a conscientious, conscientious objector to the Vietnam War, and he wasn't like a lot of people. He didn't flee to Canada. He didn't take college deferment to avoid the draft. He just stood up and said, I'm opposed and I'm not going. Um, he ended up losing his crown and losing prime years in his career. But what was most important was when he converted to Islam and talked about this, his was not a, a, con a, a conversion of convenience. He converted spoke the principles and lived the principles for the next 40, 50 years of his life and always demonstrated that, which is why he is such a global icon and a global figure, and you see this outpouring of support. He promised the he, he preached the principles of peace and tolerance and togetherness, but he wasn't hesitant to say, you know, in America we have an, a race issue where there's inequality, there's injustice, and that has to be confronted and it has to be dealt with and addressed. But he did it in a fashion that, and because of the platform he had, the heavyweight champion of the world, he was able to get people here and around the world to listen to him. Uh, you know, he, he was on a leadership role. When you look around and saw Bill Russell, Jim Brown, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, he sort of motivated an entire movement of African-American athletes at the time who were prominent, who began to speak out on social issues and justice. Uh, and, you know, he was a wonderful man, uh, a great role model, an icon, and he will be greatly missed by the world. Indeed. With wins in states including California, Hillary Clinton officially secured the Democratic nomination for president. Meanwhile, some Colorado officials, including Governor John Hickenlooper, joined others in condemning Donald Trump's attack on an Indiana judge claiming bias based on his Mexican heritage. Patty, every time we think it's, this is going to get goofier, it breaks the record, so it's, it's not even worth keeping track of that part anymore. But we did see Colorado officials getting involved in the fray, among many others. They weren't, uh, they weren't alone in this. Both with the Trump side, it was easy to forget the fact that major history was made. We have a woman at the top of a major party ticket for president. Um, I don't want to bypass that either. That's a major historical moment from all of these issues. Take your pick. Well, first of all, I don't know why you are even hosting this show, because your family, if I understand it, came from Italy, Gizzuti, which means you're not an American, that, that, well, and you probably shouldn't be here asking these questions. You know, this Trump, and much less you're not a woman, so I don't know why you're talking about that either. This Trump issue is crazy. It is crazy that he is making this stand on his own lawsuit so it's not like we're acting very presidential there it's his own personal lawsuit it gives you a very good clue of how he's going to handle the judiciary if he ever should become president and because a man from indiana happens to have a surname that could be that is latino he has a conflict of interest because this man wants to build a wall it's so bad and he will not apologize and he's sending out all his apologists who are making it even worse um, it's really, I think, his biggest blunder so far. Not a huge surprise that politicians are weighing in about it because, just as I did, how can you not talk about it? It is really one of the things that is so idiotic, it's impossible not to recognize it. On the other hand, it's amazing how many younger women don't even, or younger men probably, who've lived with women's equality, who know, who assume women can 
have careers, women can run political run for political office and win, that they don't see that this is a really groundbreaking moment, that there is a woman running for president. She's made, she will be the Democratic nominee, might even name a women, female vice presidential nominee. I mean, it's a truly a great moment in that case for history. That doesn't mean she's necessarily going to be everyone's choice. Uh, David, uh, we obviously have a lot of things to talk about here, both on the on the Hillary side and on the Trump side. But locally, I think there's been Republicans. Uh, I've seen Mike Kaufman. We've seen others who have been forced to take a stand on this particular issue with with the judge in Indiana. Is this going to be a turning point for candidates to kind of decide, hey, I'm with this guy or I'm not with this guy? Yes, a, a time for choosing, as Ronald Reagan accurately said in the 1964 campaign, and good for the choice Kaufman is making. It's scandalous that Colorado Christian University is running a Twitter campaign to cajole Trump to speak at their event. This falsely teaches CCU students that character and the Christian virtues are unimportant. Unlike talented women of Colorado, such as Madeleine Albright or Condoleezza Rice, Mrs. William Jefferson Clinton achieved her power the old-fashioned way through advantageous marriage, like Queen Jezebel. Neither big baby nor Mrs. William seek the constitutional office of President of the United States. They would not faithfully execute the laws because they, as they've shown for decades, believe that the laws are for, are for little people. They are anti-constitution nominees in the un-American, Latin American tradition of Peron, Chavez, Somoza, and other strongmen. The notion that people must choose between the evils of El Caudillo or La Caudilla is false consciousness from the great deceiver. Now that's I'm talking about analysis. If you're going to go with you know Latin American names, that well, well done, David. I say I agree or disagree, but that, uh, very well delivered. Eric, when I look at the um, the Trump point, a part of me thinks that we're seeing some um, fantastic marketing because all this time, even around this table, we're talking about the, his whole opinion about a judge in Indiana, and we're not talking about the lawsuit over th th that there's been thousands of people built <laughs> from Trump University. It's this classic magician thing. If, if if I go off on this guy, don't forget the fact that these the millions of people were were built by this organization that I ran. Um, do you do you sense a, a, a marketing three card Monty here? I don't know that he stepped into it deliberately, <laughs> but I think once he stepped into it, yes, he has embraced it. That has been his whole track record throughout this campaign, throughout the primary with the 16 other Republican candidates. Basically, it's been a strategy of if I can consume all the oxygen, no matter whether it's positive oxygen or often negative oxygen, it is all the oxygen, and that's all anyone is talking about. And once again, uh, we have seen it over the last week. Patty made reference to, you know, this was maybe his worst faux pas yet. And we've said that so many, uh, you know, I don't disagree with her, but we have said that so many times, and there have been so many examples of this is the new low, this is the disqualifying moment, and none of them have disqualified him. I mean, he's still here standing. He still has a tough road to hoe. I think, you know, there are, are there scenarios where he could win this election? Yes, there are scenarios, because Hillary Clinton is the ultimate, in my lifetime, the ultimate insider candidate in what is the ultimate outsider year. And that is her Achilles heel, and that is what she is trying to navigate. Now, Trump also, you know, his timing is better, his message is better. It's just a question of his persona. 
uh, the, the, it's the messenger, not the message in the case uh, in, in the case of Trump. In terms of the glass ceiling, I've been struck lately by the extent to which this, I mean, yes, this was a glass ceiling that was broken this week, first major party nominee who's female. And yet it is not the kind of cultural moment that it was eight years ago when Barack Obama clinched the Democratic nomination at a similar point in early June. And you almost get the sense that when he broke that glass ceiling, it wasn't just the racial glass ceiling, it was multiple glass ceilings. For a whole lot of younger women, they're having, as Patty pointed out, a harder time identifying with Hillary, identifying uh, with, Hillary's, with Hillary's struggle and, and her career path. Um, I don't, David has history that I don't have, David has South American references I don't have, but his bottom line conclusion is not necessarily the wrong conclusion in terms of the abundant flaws of both of these candidates. It is the most distressing race of my, life, of my lifetime. Penn, who has the tougher job at unification? Trump or Hillary? Trump does. Um, and first, I think we do need to pay, give credit where credit is due. Hillary Clinton has made history by becoming the first um, nominee of a major party to, to be president. Um, contrary to David's um, observation, as I've said before, I think it's clear she has been the most qualified candidate in this entire election cycle. You've got a woman who's been first lady of a state, first lady of a country, a U.S. senator, a cabinet officer in top of her class, from one of the most prestigious law schools in the country. She is no lightweight. She is a policy heavyweight. She is a bit of a policy wonk, and she understands how to navigate politics. For better or for worse, she can do those things. Um, I think she has an easier time bridging the gap with Bernie than Trump does with everybody else. Because, uh, you know, and, and I go back to the question you asked Eric, because that's how I analyze this. I'm aggravated with Trump for what I think are clearly racist comments he made about the judge. But I think it's calculated because what he doesn't want people to focus on is the underlying lawsuit. And he, 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 as ridiculous as you may feel his campaign has been up to this point, Americans need to ask themselves the fundamental question. Do you want a president who's been sued for swindling thousands of people? It's fraud. It's deception. It's theft, it's swindling. And what happens if this guy wins and he loses the lawsuit? Uh, you know, so the, the <laughs> country, it is just amazing that everybody's focusing on his comments about the judge, but I think he's sly as a fox. He's outrageous intentionally because he doesn't want you to focus on the underlying lawsuit, which is the real spooky part and which really reflects, in my opinion, the fundamentally flawed nature of Donald Trump as both a ca candidate and, quite frankly, as a man. The U.S. Senate Republican primary continued to heat up this week. In a Colorado Springs debate, Daryl Glenn called into question how John Kaiser earned his bronze star. Meanwhile, Maureen Moss, the woman who allegedly, allegedly forged signatures while collecting for a company working for the John Kaiser campaign, was arrested on 34 felony charges. This is all a great segue because at 9 o'clock tonight, right here on Channel 12, we'll be featuring our hour-long debate with the five Republican candidates in the U.S. Senate primary, so be sure to stay tuned and check that out. But David, the floor is yours when we look at this primary, have we seen a, a front-runner emerge? No, not yet. Um, but the, it's great that uh, the alleged signature forger, Marine Moss, was arrested because that sends a really important signal in future petition campaigns. You can understand why petition gatherers who are doing short-term work for not that much money uh, 
could easily be tempted to do shortcuts and just fill in names out of the phone book or something like that. So it's really important that the law enforcement system send the signal that, that you, you can't ever do that. Um, in, in terms of Glenn's attack on Kaiser for the Bronze Star, well, we can go back to, you know, if you say something like that, you better be able to prove it. Now, people attacked John Kerry accurately when he, he was like, I want three Purple Hearts, uh, was, was the theme of his campaign, and his combat fellow soldiers persuasively showed that probably two out of the three were pretty sketchy. One, one was, the middle one was legitimate, but not the others. But for, for Glenn to go after Kaiser on the Bronze Star like this, uh, is, I'd say it's a high-risk uh, strategy. Um, Mitch McConnell uh, slammed Glenn for having received the Senate Conservative Fund, or whatever it's called, endorsement. I don't think it was very persuasive. His point was, well, they endorsed Todd Akin. Well, you know, everybody's endorsed somebody stupid who self-destructed at some point in a, in a campaign. Just look at what the Democratic and Republican parties are about to do. Uh, so the fact that they made a mistake with Aiken doesn't mean that it was wrong for them to endorse Glenn. Eric, does the, I guess I remember the uh, esteemed former host of the show, uh, Peter Boyle, as I recall, does the, Maureen Moss doing the perp walk help <laughs> John Kaiser? No, it doesn't help John Kaiser. I mean, because as long as this issue stays in the news, no one reasonably believes John Kaiser was telling Maureen, okay, let's circle your M this way or whatever in, in, in her distinctive handwriting. Kaiser doesn't have, culp no one thinks Kaiser has culpability here, but every time this is in the news, it brings up all those visions of that awful Channel 7 interview where he basically froze, where he was a deer in the headlights. So it is not good news for Kaiser, uh, even though it is the appropriate prosecution uh, to take place. This thing is totally up for grabs. And I've seen sleepy primaries before. This is one of the sleepier ones I've seen. Um, yes, you know, it's heated up and charges are being thrown back and forth. But I think we were talking earlier about oxygen. And I think the presidential race, and particularly Trump, has taken up so much oxygen. There's just not a, left, a lot left for this Senate race. I can make a plausible case for either any of these five candidates to emerge victorious. The analogy to me is a number of years ago, better part of two decades ago, when our former table mate, Tom Tancredo, won a ticket to Congress. It was a five-way Republican primary. Tom won that primary with 27% of the vote. Here you have five candidates, all of whom, none of them are going to get a tiny sliver of the pie. They'll all get a real piece of the pie. I think somebody will win this between 25 and 30% will be the winning number. I think it could almost be any of the five. I think maybe two or three have a better chance than the other two or three. And then the last question is, is it a nomination worth having, given Bennett's strength, not unassailable strength, but relative strength to where Udall was, weakness of the Republican field, et cetera, and giving Donald Trump uh, at the top of the ticket. So, you know, if this started out as being a big Republican prospect of a pickup seat around the country, and I think those visions have really waned in terms of the likelihood of that happening. Penn, with the primary season the way it's gone, without a clear front runner, without a, a lot of press that isn't about signatures, can the eventual winner on June 28th build enough momentum to take out an incumbent? I know it's only a one-term incumbent, but that, in Colorado history, that does not happen very often. What do you think? No. 
Um, the, the, the reality is this. You have five people running for the Republican nomination who most people never heard of before, really, uh, throughout the state. Um, you've got one of them who I think is taking an interesting approach. Jack Graham in his TV commercials is almost running the general election now thinking, nobody knows who I am anyway, so I may as well go on TV and talk about a bunch of stuff that isn't really of any consequence, but try to be a nice guy and have a bunch of different color faces sitting around the kitchen table with me. And maybe I'll get 27%, like Eric said, because I think that's probably about where you need to end up to win the primary. And then I'll at least take my chances against Bennett. Um, he probably sees himself as more moderate than the other f four in the, in the contest with him, so thinks that maybe he can undermine Bennett. But the reality is... The way the presidential primary is shaping up, it's taken all of the air out of the room. Nobody knows who these five guys are to begin with. Nobody's paying much attention to them. And when one of them eventually becomes the nominee, the problem they're going to be faced with is the head of their ticket is a guy who didn't even win the Republican primary preference, whatever the party wants to call it, here in Colorado, because all of the Colorado delegates went to, to Ted Cruz. So, you, you know, you're running for a seat where the head of the ticket is not even the one that other people in your party wanted, and you're running against a relatively popular incumbent. No. <laughs> uh, Patty, we've had a lot of fun talking about uh, political ads around the table, so I'm throwing at you. What do you think about Bennett's new political ad that basically talks about a broken Washington, although he's been a part of that broken Washington for about six years? Is that a good strategy? It's not a bad strategy because obviously that is going to be the only thing maybe one of the Republican candidate will go after is that he's an incumbent in Washington. But if, if you look at Bennett's record, he has worked on compromises. He's shown he's willing to take a step to work with the other side, and he can back that up. You know, I was thinking today when I saw Mike Kopp's name, because he's now head of Colorado Concern, how impressive the candidates were for the Republican candidates for governor two years ago, running against Hickenlooper, running against an incumbent, but a much more interesting campaign. You're right, there's not room for a lot of discussion now, but when you see, you know, even Scott Gessler, I'm feeling nostalgia for him now, <laughs> that he would be a really interesting person to run against Bennett. We are, j it's just five really lackluster candidates. Let me uh, do a quick one on this. We'll, put, we'll, we'll, we'll cover it later in a uh, post-game segment, but let me just get kind of a yes or no prediction because you know how great we are at predictions at this table. Um, we're Friday at noon. We don't know if Governor Hickelooper is going to call, if he's going to veto the, the liquor store bill, um, if he's going to call a special session. Your quick bumper sticker prediction, where's it going to go, Patty? Uh, I'm going to go for veto. I don't think you can solve this in a special session. David? Well, conceivably might veto it and then call the special session and sort of use the liquor store veto as a pretext to have what's much more important to him, which is the doing the hospital uh, tax increase uh, without voter approval. Eric? No on the special session. Uh, don't know, really don't have a prediction what he's going to do with the liquor bill. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. It's not a great fix, but they want to avoid the ballot issue. Had dinner recently with the legislature, a legislator and a spouse, and the spouse who's a Democrat, threatened physical harm against the governor. If there's a special session, she wants her <laughs> husband home. I say no on a special session because I don't know how it's going to turn out different than the, the, the first debate. 
Ping, you've been there before. What do you think? Uh, I think he vetoes the bill. It's, it's got a number of flaws, and, and a number of people aren't happy. I think he does call a special session on the two topics, the, the liquor store piece and the um, provider fee uh, in terms of putting it in an enterprise status. And I think there's a likelihood of maybe striking a deal more with the provider fee issue than with the liquor store um, issue. We'll see. Interesting. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. And if you'd like to share your Disgrace of the Week or say something nice on air, tweet us or post to our Facebook page. But as always, Ms. Calhoun starts us off. I'm going to have to go with the Denver Post, which not only is laying off probably 20% of its newsroom right now, uh, but doing buyouts, but also has sent one of the most inane subscription letters in the history of the world to their subscribers. It's not enough that your annual fee is going to go up 60%. But if you don't read the fine print and opt out of this special issue or that, we talked about the Super Bowl victory thing, they're now doing it for their Thanksgiving issue and everything else. They are basically trying to convince long-term subscribers to go away, which doesn't seem like a long-term strategy for staying in business. You'd like to think so. David. As Penn said earlier, a guy who's a, who swindles students is, for that reason alone, absolutely unfit for the presidency. Bill Clinton was paid $16 million to be honorary chancellor of Laureate University International, a online scam school that ripped off students. They paid him $16 million. Hillary's State Department turned around and paid the guy who runs this scam operation $55 million. The Trumps and the Clintons are absolutely unfit for any position of public trust. You can't say we're not balanced. Eric. It's not often or usual that I agree with David. Um, and first of all, let me acknowledge that Patty's thing, I got that letter as a Denver Post subscriber, just bonkers, beyond imagination. But to the presidential race, I think it is a disgrace. I described it during the show, the main part of the show, as the most distressing race of my lifetime. You have two people. You have one who is a total buffoon and not even a plausible president. You have the other one who's a plausible president but lives her life under a constant ethical cloud. And this uh, country of 310 million Americans, and this is the best we can do. This is a disgrace. Penn. National politics generally. Um, it's becoming more and more distressing. I'll just leave it at that. We need to say something nice about somebody rather quickly. Patty? Two Denver City Council members, both of whom came from publications. Paul Cashman from Washington Park Profile. Kevin Flynn, once at the Rocky Mountain News. Both fighting for transparency, public hearings at City Council. Good work. David. Governor John Hickenlooper, when he was giving a, a book speech in a church in Boulder, it was interrupted violently for an hour by anti-frack thugs, and he calmly sat down and played the piano to entertain the crowd. <laughs> That's a good response. I like that. Eric. Oh, we talked about Muhammad Ali, not of the kind of international consequence, but we also lost today, a few hours before taping, another athlete of note, Gordie Howe, Mr. Hockey, brought the sport really to the forefront or was one of the people of that era who brought this great sport to the forefront and will be missed. Penn. Uh, echo Eric sentiments. Gordy Howe was one of a kind also. You have to remember this is a guy who actively played hockey until he was 51 or 52 at a professional level, primarily because he wanted to play hockey with his two sons who also became professional hockey players. He'll be missed and we probably won't see his like come our way again anytime soon. 
Well, we'll make it a hat trick because our viewer submitted Say Something Nice was also about Gordie Howe. Patrick and Denver wanted to uh, uh, start that shout out. That is all time we have tonight. Thanks for tuning in. Colorado Decides continues the primary season tonight with our debate featuring the candidates for the U.S. Senate Republican primary at 9 p.m. It got spicy. I think you'll want to check it out. For everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thanks for watching. Good night. Thank you.